I want to welcome all of you across our network to week three of Revolution, a four-part journey that we're actually going to wrap up this coming weekend at our Good Friday services. But before we do that, we want to take one more opportunity to look at how love is greater through the life of one more biblical leader. And today, we have the opportunity and privilege to hear from one of the leading voices in the conversation around injustice to help us do that, my wife, Beth. Woo! Yep. Now, thank you for being willing to facilitate this part of our journey. I, I have to acknowledge that the last time that we were up on the platform together, I introduced you as my special friend. You did. And I failed to communicate clearly our marital status. That's true. And that led a few people to wonder why we were so friendly with that, each that's other. That's also true. So let me just clarify. BFFs, <laughs> husband-wife, wife-husband. I think that's clear now. We're good. Now, you're not just my wife. You're a leader, a speaker, a coach, consultant. The list could go on. You've traveled nationally and internationally to mobilize God's church towards his heart for justice. And I'm glad you're here because I know that God has laid on your heart a very specific message for us in this time and place. And I'm glad you're willing to speak that to us today. Now, I want to pray for you. But before I do that, I have a very important question. It's something that I've been dealing with for a few weeks. It's been surprising how many inquiries I've had about this particular thing. And I, I think you can actually resolve this and, and end this today if you're willing to help me. Are, are you willing? Sure. All right. Am I coloring my beard or not? <laughs> Serious question, people. Serious question. No, he's not. Ha! See? Uh-huh. You can tell by the gray that's interspersed throughout that. <laughs> XA on the gray A commentary. Just want to make that clear. Not coloring it. All right. Back to the business at hand. I'd love to pray for you as you take us into the word. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the gathering of your people, for your presence here among us by your spirit. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is a beside me is a daughter of you, the king. You've called her and equipped her, you've gifted her, and I pray that your Holy Spirit's anointing would be especially upon her as she leads us today in the conversation around something that reflects your heart. May you speak and may we hear today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And thanks. I am honored to be with you today, Bettendorf, and those of joining us online and here at Rock Island. Um, you know, I certainly don't feel like a leading voice in the conversation around injustice and what is the church, um, what should we be doing, what can we be doing. I, I just, I feel like I'm a learner, and I feel like the last several years, God has just invited me into a journey of being uncomfortable and having my worldview kind of turned upside down and going into hard spaces and hard places to bear witness to his heart for justice. And I've just tried to be obedient to say yes. Um, I've had the honor and privilege the last few years of helping our denomination, the Wesleyan Church, have this conversation. What does it look like for us as a denomination to really reflect his heart for justice um, to the world? And so I stand before you as a learner who just wants to invite you into this journey with me. The last few weeks we've been talking as a church about the love revolution and how love, the love that comes from God is really greater than. It is greater than despair. It is greater than apathy. And today your first fill-in, if you're following along in your note guide, is that love is greater than injustice. And so I think if we're going to 
take that statement, we need to unpack it a little bit. And so when I think about love, I, I think that God made it really clear for us. And I love it when he does this in Matthew. He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing this, you are fulfilling the law. And so it's in these two commands that we really get handholds as Christ followers of what does it mean to love God. And here's what I know to be true about the love of God. If we love him We will love what he loves. His love is active. It is not passive. It is not just for us to bottle it up inside of ourselves and be like, woohoo, I'm just so loved. That's a piece of it, but that's just the beginning. We just sang about coming to the cross and his love washing down and his love washing over us and on us and cleansing us and through us so that we can be a conduit of his love. If we love God, we will love what he loves. And what does God love? Isaiah 61 tells us, For I, the Lord, love justice. Psalm 11, The Lord is righteous and he loves justice. Isaiah 1 tells us to seek justice, defend the fatherless, encourage the oppressed, plead the widow's cause. Micah 6, 8, Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. The Lord loves justice. He loves justice and mercy, the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable, the stranger. In our day, the stranger looks like the immigrant and the refugee. And so if we really say that love is greater than, we've got to look at what love is greater than injustice. And so what are we talking about with injustice? Injustice is defined by the dictionary as the lack of fairness or the lack of justice. I don't know that that really helps us that much. So this is how I like to talk about it. These are my handholds when I'm trying to understand what God's talking about when he says he's the God of justice. Injustice is the breaking of what ought to have been. And so my visual for this, it's the Garden of Eden, creation. God created He created man, woman, he set them in the garden, and it was good. It was perfect. It was as it ought to have been. There was no inhibition between the man and the woman and their connection to God. It's that primary justice, that oughtness that we were created for. And then we know what happens. Sin enters that scene and breaks justice. It breaks what ought to have been, and we live in a world now that is marred by brokenness and injustice. And so we're constantly trying to get back to that state of what we were created for, that oughtness. And we find that when we find relationship with God, ultimately. That's what starts to restore that oughtness in our life. And that's what we're called to be, agents of that reconciliation, reconciling God to man, man to each other, and man to community. We find injustice in the exploitation of people, in slavery, in orphans, in gender side, where women are killed because they are women, in abortion, 
in racial and ethnic and cultural discrimination in pornography. Sometimes we encounter injustice as a victim. Sometimes we participate in a system that is unjust. And other times, we're just bystanders, watching injustice happening around us, thanking God that it's them and it's not us. Today we're going to look at the nation of Israel and the book of Judges and how what they navigated as they lived in a time of injustice. They were in a cycle where injustice was part of their living and their being, and they were constantly trying to get out of that cycle that they were in. Judges is a book that we don't often study, and so I'll give you my little tip that I learned as a kid when I was learning the books of the Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. If you hit Ruth, you went too far, and I encourage you to pull out your Bible and turn to Judges chapter 4 as we look at the role of the judges and what that has to say about how we're living in a world today. So what was the role of the judges? The judges, their purpose was to remind the people of God who they were and whose they were. They were to call the people of God back to a relationship of trust and obedience. And God's command to them was, if you will trust me and obey me, I will keep my covenant with you. Sean talked about this last week in this cycle of no love, trust, obey. If you're following along in your note guide, save room because we've got another cycle that we want to talk about. But you'll remember last week we talked about this is God's design for relationship. This is what he wants for us. This pulls us deeper into him. When we know him, we love him. When we love him, we're able to trust him. And when we trust him, we are able to step out into new levels of obedience with him. Know, love, trust, obey, pulling us deeper into relationship with our Father. That was God's design. And yet we know that sin and brokenness cause us to struggle with living in this sweet spot with God. In Judges, what we see happening is Joshua has just died. I want to set the stage for you because there's a lot happening. Joshua's died. The people are in the promised land. The tribes go in. The tribes are told to go and subdue the people, vanquish the people who are living in the areas there to occupy, and to live in the land and flourish and multiply and live in covenant and right relationship with God. And some of the tribes do that, and some of the tribes don't. And they make handshakes with the people, and they, and they say, well, we'll just we'll coexist. And then coexistence leads them into worshiping their gods, intermarrying, and other things. And so they become disobedient before God. And so then what happens? They go from a time of freedom into a time of disobedience into slavery. And we see this cycle repeated 14 times in the book of Judges. There are 14 different judges that come along in this cycle for the people of Israel. And so the people are in slavery. It literally says over and over again, God sold them into slavery. I had to read that like a couple of times because I was like, wow, that, that, that seems harsh. Is that really what happened? And, and it is. Over and over again, the reality is that the consequences for disobedience are slavery. And I think that if we look at our own lives, we can see where that plays out in our own lives. Where instead of God being our master, we become owned by something else when we disobey. 
And so the people live in slavery. Sometimes it's decades that go by until eventually they cry out to God for deliverance and God sends a judge. That judge comes along, that judge on behalf of the people cries out to God, gets wisdom from God, leads the people into repentance and then deliverance and they're able to experience a period of freedom. And so this is the cycle of the judges. This is what we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 4 as we look at Deborah and as we look at what she, what she was navigating as she came on the scene in Judges chapter 4. Here's the implication for us in this cycle, though. Our obedience, our level of obedience directly impacts our connection to God. I think that's a hard truth for us to sit in. Because I don't think there's a one of us who doesn't want to feel connected to God. We were wired for that. And so we want that direct line. We want to cry out to him and have him answer us. But here's the rub of that. Our level of connection to God is directly tied to our obedience. And we struggle with being completely obedient to what he has called us to do, what he's asked us to do, to all of his commands. And so what happens is we get one area of our life, we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you in my relationships. And so we're tending to that, and then we no sooner are obedient to that, and we realize, I am not being obedient to the Lord with my finances. I am not being obedient to the Lord with my time. And so we start to focus on that. It, it's, it's a battle. But the truth is, this is what God wants. Uh, he wants this for us. He wants us to know him and to love him and to trust us and obey him. And by the power of the Spirit, we can do that. We can live in full obedience to what he is asking us to do. So let's pick up the story of, of Deborah in Judges chapter 4. And we're going to see specifically with this instance with the Canaanites, how this plays out for the people of Israel. So Ehud has just died. He was the judge preceding Deborah. They have 80 years of freedom. There's a brief stint with a judge named Shamgar. He just gets like half a verse shout out leading up to Deborah. He's the third judge. And Deborah is the fourth judge. She's the first principal judge. She is called a judge, a prophet, the mother of Israel. God has sold the people into slavery. It's been 20 years. 20 years, the people finally cry out to God for a deliverer, and he sends them Deborah. So we're going to pick up Judges chapter 4 in verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. All right, we're going to stop right there. There are two things that I want us to know about what's happening here. The first is that Deborah was bold to be the first. She was the first female judge that was recorded in Scripture. She was the first to the first principal judge, the first judge to be more than just a warrior deliverer, but a judge who was also a prophet, who heard directly from God on behalf of the people. She was bold to follow God in a new way. The second is this. If you'll notice, it talks about Deborah being under a tree holding court. 
And I read that, and I was like, huh, that's kind of different. Did they all do that? Was that just how they did it back then? And I started digging around into that. And here's why Deborah did that. Because as a woman, she could not have been obedient to God and done what God was asking her to do and done it in the way it had traditionally been done. Because a woman could not meet with a man, hold court with a man in any sort of a closed building. And so it would have been impossible for her to actually be a judge because she was primarily meeting with men and do it that way. I love Deborah's creativity to be obedient to what God was asking her to do and to find a way. I believe that Deborah knew this. Partial obedience or delayed obedience is disobedience. She could, have used, she could have said to God, hey God, I think maybe you're asking me to do this, but you know what? It's not acceptable. It's not culturally appropriate. It's never been done before. I'm not really sure that I'm the right person. You probably want to call a dude for that job. That's not what she did. She found a way to be obedient, to live into God's purpose for her, and the people of Israel benefited from her courage. The purpose of the judges was to move people into relationship with God. That was their whole goal. And the people of Israel really struggled with this because what they did was the judge was raised up, the deliverer. That judge called them into repentance and moved them into freedom. And as long as that judge was alive and that generation that had witnessed that, the people followed God. Which you know what that tells me? They never really got their hook into God and who he was. They were really following the judge who was following God. There are no surrogate relationships in the kingdom of God. We have to stand on our own feet in relationship with God. God was ultimately trying to call the people of Israel into know, love, trust, obey, into his heart. And it was like almost but not quite for them. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children I think sometimes that some of us are trying to have our relationship with God through our spouse, through our parents, through our children, through a coworker, through someone else. And here is what your loving father is saying to you. I want you to be in relationship with me. I want to be your father. I want to have that direct connection with you. If you have never done that and made that choice for yourself, I beg you that today would be the day where you would choose to stand before him, to stand before that cross and let his love wash down as you become his child. If you don't know how to do that, there's a prayer in your sermon note guide. We'd love to talk to you after the service at our Next Steps kiosk. A member of the ministry team would love to pray with you. Let this be the day where you start your own relationship with God as your father. The people of Israel struggled with this, and this led to their continued cycle of bondage and disobedience and slavery. I don't want that for you. 
Let's get back into our story. We're going to pick it up in Judges chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. So picture Deborah. She's under the palm tree. She's acting in her role as judge. She is also prophet, which means the Spirit of God comes to her and speaks to her and speaks truth to her that is not for her, but it is for the people of Israel. And so at some point, she's under the palm tree. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to her, and she has a word of command for Barak. And so Deborah sends for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and she says to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go. Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Okay, this is not Deborah saying, I will give him into your hands. This is God Almighty saying to Barak, look, this is the battle plan, this is what you need to do, and this is what I'm going to show up and do. Now, the people of Israel had seen God time and again come through on these kind of scenarios. And yet, Barak's response is one of doubt. And he responds with if, he responds with conditions. He was an experienced commander with 10,000 men under his command who had seen God work. And yet this is his response. Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And so we see again that partial obedience, delayed obedience is disobedience. And this is Deborah's response in verse 9. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. So Deborah calls the people in Barak to obedience, to rise up and free Israel. Barak refuses without Deborah, and so now we see warrior added to the title of Deborah. It is the obedience and courage of Deborah that will begin the liberation. And this is his word for us as we soak in that story of Deborah. It only takes one person to stand against the tide to begin the liberation for many. It only takes one person to stand against the tide to begin the liberation for many. And some of you need to hear that because you're the one. You're living in a generational cycle of sin. You're struggling with an addiction that seems so much stronger than you are. You feel powerless. You feel like you're just one. It only takes one. And the power of the Spirit at work in and through you to begin the liberation for many. God wants to bring freedom through his people. But we have got to be a people who live in freedom for that to happen. The judges were God's agents in the midst of terrible circumstances. They heard from God on behalf of the people. They were people whose love for God was always, always, always greater than the despair, the sin, the injustice that was staring them in the face. 
Their love for God compelled them, like David and like Esther, to offer hope and empathy and courage to step out into obedience into an alternative future with God. Here's what I know to be true as we look at a world that is broken with injustice. As we hear words of hatred and division and deep prejudice and discrimination, love must be our fuel to fight injustice. This has come for me by slow freight. When I first kind of had my worldview turned upside down and my eyes opened to what was happening in the world and what God was asking me to step into, honestly, I was pretty outraged by what I saw. And I'm a person of action, and so I was like, this is not right. Something needs to happen. And there was some anger fueling that, and there was some wanting to make things right, and that'll get you so far. And what I have found to be rock-solid truth is that my love for God must be the fuel that causes me to be able to step out each and every day into those hard places of injustice. Many of us feel unlikely that this isn't the right time to step out in obedience. I had a, we had a friend that stopped by recently and met with some of our leadership team And several years ago, he kind of had his worldview turned upside down, and God really rocked his heart. And he was sharing with us some of his journey and his story. And uh, we captured it on video. And so I want you to just kind of sit back and listen to my friend Micah Kephart, the CEO and founder of Poetis International, talk about his journey. And then we'll come back and kind of talk about what does that mean for us. Let's have a look together. Hey, Heritage. Justin here. I am so excited this weekend to introduce from Poetis International, Micah Kephart. Micah, as a church over the last year, using our Go Be Love missional emphasis, we've been exploring God's heart for justice and the reality that love is greater than injustice. And Micah, I was wondering, would you share with us that when you first began to understand God's heart for justice? Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about exposure because I didn't begin to understand God's heart for justice until I was confronted with profound injustice. Uh, Back in 2005, I was serving as a worship pastor in the local church, and I went to Zambia for the first time. And we were visiting people in their homes, and we were in a shanty compound in Zambia's capital, Lusaka. And we entered the home of this widow who was infected with HIV. She had tuberculosis and malaria. She was literally on her deathbed. And her caregiver asked her how we, a group of musicians, might minister to her. And of all the things that she could have said, she wanted us to sing. And so as I began to sing these songs of hope and light, I I, I couldn't reconcile the realities of those songs with the reality of the situation, the injustice of the situation. Very common story, her husband uh, had multiple relationships, contracted HIV, came home, infected her, and when she got sick, he abandoned her with six kids at home. And so in that moment, I, I tell everybody, a sleeping giant of justice woke up in my heart as I began to not only see God's love for the poor, the lost, and the least, but also how his heart breaks for injustice. And, you know, justice is the thing that 
prevents situations like that from happening. Justice is also the thing that happens in between making that situation right. And that is what I'm called to for the rest of my life. Wow. Wow, Micah, since this experience in 2005, I know that you have poured your life out pursuing justice and seeing the kingdom of God spread around the world. Can you share with us what fuels that heart, that passion within you for justice? Well, I can tell you what has to fuel that heart, and it hasn't always been the fuel. Uh, I think in that moment, my reaction was anger. It was wanting vengeance, you know. Um, but those aren't the things that can sustain a call to justice. Um, you go back to the life of Jesus and everything that he did, even to his death, joy and love was the motivation. And so it has to be, it has to come from a place of compassionate love in order to seek justice all over the world. Well, Micah, thank you for taking the time with us, uh, letting us, one, learn about your experience and learning from you and how we can best be a people that embrace justice and live in a way uh, that love truly is greater than injustice. I love what Micah's doing, equipping young men and young women to be people who model living this truth that love is greater than apathy, that love is greater than despair, that love is greater than injustice. I love his picture of justice isn't just what, what intervenes, but justice is the thing that stands in between. You know, I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian and professor and pastor and scholar in Germany. And, and he talked about three morally right responses for the Christian to injustice. The first is to speak truth to the state. The second is to give aid to victims of the state. And the third is to directly engage the unjust system. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this at a time where Germany was gripped, they had just become kind of gripped in this language of fear-mongering and hatred. Two days after Hitler became chancellor of Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave a radio address. It was The year was 1933, and he talked about this. And this is a direct quote from that speech. We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was appealing to the church of Germany who was standing by and not engaged in what was happening. They were passively watching injustice happening and saying, thank God, it's not us. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was convicted that we as Christ followers are called not just to bandage up people who are messed up by the unjust systems, but we are to actually engage the systems and drive a spoke into that wheel. Much like J.L., the wife of Heber did to Sisera. This is the rest of the story. The battle happens, Barak goes down with Deborah. Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, flees. He ends up in the tent of a woman named J.L., she sees him, she knows who she is, she's by herself, and she does what any sane woman would do in that moment. 
She says, let me heat up some milk for you and get you a nice drink, and you should probably take a nap. And that is literally what happens. She gives him a drink of warm milk. He lays down. He goes to sleep. And Jael knows that she is being called to intervene and to literally, she drives a stake through his head and kills Sisera. And thereby, God's decree that the victory would be delivered into the hands of a woman is complete. It starts with Deborah and it ends in jail because God is always true to his word. We are not called to be observers. We, our love must propel us into action as we engage with injustice. So what keeps us from stepping out in obedience, courageously standing against the tides of injustice that are sweeping our communities, our cities, our nation, our world? I wonder if we have forgotten who we are and whose we are. I can think of no better way to spend our remaining time than to remind us. Because there are so many voices that we hear that are telling us things that are not true about who we are as the people of God and who we belong to, who he is. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 and 16, and we are going to spend some time soaking this in. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you, you, my friends, are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a people of light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy and so dispense that mercy in the measure that it has been given to you. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. My friends, it matters in eternity who we are a slave to now. We were wired to have a master. And if he is not our master, something else is mastering us. We cannot give people what we don't have. We were not made to live in slavery. We were made in the image of God, having inherent value, bearing his image, having dignity, being wired for community, these are all things that are part of who we are in the image of God. You know, there are 30 million people, it's estimated, that are living in physical slavery today. Three quarters of those are in labor slavery. Sex trafficking gets talked about a lot, but the reality is the vast majority of those people live in labor trafficking. And before you think that you don't have anything to do with that problem. For many of us, the chocolate that we eat, the coffee that we drink, the cell phone that we use, the jeans we wear, the carpet that we stand on, the seafood that we eat is tainted 
with the blood of slaves. And as staggering as that statistic is, how many more are in spiritual slavery? Millions and millions and millions more in spiritual slavery. Economic slavery, emotional, social, relational. What keeps us from engaging with this reality? I think it's our own bondage. You can't give people what you don't have. If we live enslaved, our lives don't point people to freedom that's found in relationship with God. And so we choose our familiar chains. We choose our chains of control, of greed, of fear, of worry. And we pick those up. And we'd rather have those than the, than the possibility of what running free with God might look like. Because that seems too risky. That seems scary. That's too big. We're not the right people. We're unlikely. But the reality is for us to live in obedience We've got to be willing to have those chains unlocked and to run free with him. Galatians 5.1 tells us this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. We were made for freedom. Like David, like Esther, like Deborah, we've got to rely on the power of God going before us to experience that. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will see it through to the day of completion. And so here is the ultimate question. Am I enslaved to anything other than God? We were created for a master. No one else can tell you that. I can't tell you that. Your spouse can't tell you that. Your coworker can't tell you that. This is a you and God question. God, search me and know me. Am I enslaved to anything other than you? The answer is yes. If something else motivates you, if you make decisions out of a place of fear, out of a place of worry, if you find your security in anything other than him, You know, as you do some inventory, you might bump up against some stuff where you're like, yeah, I, I, I've got some bondage here and I've got a hook in me there. And I don't want to leave you without some practical next steps. Wellsprings is a local ministry that we're partnered with as a church. And they have many wonderful people in their ministry that will walk alongside you kind of as a guide as you work to break this cycle of bondage and disobedience that leads us into slavery that so many of us struggle with. There's information in your worship folder. There's an orientation class coming up in just a few weeks. You can go on their website. I encourage you not to try to do this alone. And I also want to encourage you and remind you that because of who you are and whose you are, this can happen. As you wrestle with this question of am I enslaved to anything other than God, I think it's important for us just to go, okay, God, how do I get there? How do I understand who I am supposed to be? Who did you design me to be? What did you create me for? And so I want to speak this truth to us, and then we're going to sort of pray out our time here. My friends, 
This is who you were created to be. You are beloved. You are his child. You bear his image. You are called to be an agent of reconciliation in the brokenness around you. You are a peacemaker. You are a new creation. You are brave because he goes before you. You are saved because he died for you. You are free because he broke the chains of sin and death when he rose from the grave. You are the sent people of God. We can live on mission because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Church, this is who we are. In a world of fear-mongering and hatred, we are called to be the people of hope, the people of love, the people who call people to the one who can fix what is broken. This is who we are. We're going to pray, and we are going to focus on whose we are in our prayer. Father God, you are sovereign God of the universe. You are creator. You are the alpha and the omega. You exist outside of time, and you hold our time in your hands. You are mighty. You are worthy. You are holy. Your banner over us is love. God, you are the one who heals us. You are sufficient. You are Jehovah Jireh. And we declare that we are yours. Father, we reject being slaves to fear. We reject being slaves to worry. We reject being slaves to comfort. And we say, Father, we only want to be enslaved to you. Search us and know us. We love you. We adore you. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of our Savior Jesus, whom we love. Amen.